This podcast is brought to you thanks to the generous support of Whistler Blackcomb, leaders in delivering adventure. You know, without the grizzly there, they would have never slid. But the grizzly there instantaneous, didn't even hesitate, <laughs> right over the cliff with me. And uh, we got to run away from that bear and watch that bear rip our packs apart, basically play with our packs at one point, bouncing a, a Ziploc bag full of food on his head as he's lying on his back, paws in the air. This is Delivering Adventure. Welcome to the podcast that explores what it really takes to share adventure like a pro with your friends, your family, and as a profession. My name is Chris Capio, and I'm coming to you from Whistler, British Columbia. And I'm Jordy Shepard, recording from Canmore, Alberta. After a lifetime of working extensively in different parts of the adventure guiding industry, Chris and I have teamed up to launch this podcast. In each episode, you will hear top adventure guides, managers, marketers, and athletes share their best stories, advice, and trade secrets. The goal of this podcast is to share how you can take yourself and others farther from the mountains to the office and beyond. In this episode, we continue our discussion with Barry Blanchard, Barry is an internationally certified ACMG IFMGA mountain guide. Barry is one of North America's premier alpine climbers. He has been guiding since 1981 and has guided on six different continents. Barry is also an author and his book, The Calling, A Life Rocked by Mountains, was awarded the 2015 Boardman Tasker Prize for Mountain Literature. In part two of two parts, Barry Blanchard talks with us about what it takes to achieve adventure. Barry recounts some tough guiding situations that he has faced, close calls with bearers, how to balance risk-taking, and his hopes for his legacy. Okay, let's bring Barry back into the DA studio. So Barry, you noted in the first part of our interview that you can't have an adventure without some level of discomfort, risk, or suffering. When it comes to achieving an adventure, these things are part of the price of admission, so to speak. For those of us who are trying to deliver adventure, the challenge is that the world that we live in seems to be making people less resilient to discomfort. Put another way, people are getting softer. Last year, I was leading a group of kayakers when one of my clients, who was a teenage girl, brushed the side of the riverbank. As a result, she ended up getting dirt on her leg. The way she was carrying on and having a meltdown, you would have thought that she was being attacked by a nest of angry bees. Her mother was horrified by her daughter's lack of resiliency. Unfortunately, this is a scene that I have seen play out with increased frequency. Based on your experience, what kind of advice do you have for us when it comes to coaching people through adversity so that people can achieve an adventure? Um, I think that uh, it's uh, part of a, a guide's uh, uh, toolbox and uh, skill set is to, to be able to read people. And it's funny, you know, um, uh, at, at, at Yamneska Mountain Adventures, where, where I... Uh, have worked uh, since 1981 <laughs> as a guide. 
Um, it's beginning to feel like seem like a career, but you know we have this uh, saying that's been around for a long time. You know, with uh, our guests, we can often tell who we're going to have to pay more attention to, seeing how they walk across the parking lot and step up into the office, and a guy being able to uh, make those it call it's a judgment. But being able to say, okay, this person is less stable than this person. I'm going to have to pay more attention to this person. And then on the same side of it all, when people are getting stressed, um, uh, gauging how stressed they're getting, is it going to be uh, beneficial to encourage them to continue? Or are they at the point where, you know, Hemingway said never do anything that you really don't want to do. Are they at that point? Is pushing them not going to be beneficial for them? Um, is it really time to, to take that person down? And uh, then making the adjustment uh, uh, to do that. So I think uh, being able to, to read people that way is part of a guide's skill. And uh, yeah, yeah, and, and, and some of that is going to be through conversation, like, you know, just sitting and, 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 and uh, eye to eye with the person, you know, ask him what, you know, what in the past has made you feel like that? Why does this seem like something that you've done before? Um, was it similar to something that's, you know, made you want to turn around? Trying to just, you know, get it figured out. And uh, um, sometimes, yeah, yeah, no, it's like, okay, yeah, yeah, you, uh, you're feeling like that, but uh, why don't we just try going this next 10 feet? How about if we make it to that pinnacle over there and then we stop there and we can have this conversation again? But I think it'd be great if we could go to that pinnacle first before we have this conversation. So making a, you know, a negotiation and a contract or whatever you want to call it, talking to people. I think of uh, one person I guided, well, man, it would have been in the 80s. And he was a gentleman who had true uh, acrophobia, fear of heights. And it was significant. He would have a nervous system reaction to stepping a meter off the ground. He would start to shake. And you could see that it was a central nervous system thing. And he was trying to use ice climbing as a way to, to force himself to, to get beyond this acrophobia. And it was just, you know, he'd step up on the ice and he'd start to vibrate and shake. And, you know, he would, you know, going to be falling off just because he was shaking so bad. So, yeah, you know, I had to say to, to him, you know, I don't know why this phobia is inside you, but it's there. And I don't think this is the place to push against it, that this is too much. I think you need to do some baby steps and uh, start with smaller objectives of height and work up to them and hopefully get to the point where, yeah, you can come back and enjoy some ice climbing. But yeah, you know, you're you're not enjoying this. <laughs> it don't look a lot of fun. <laughs> Supposed to be some fun. <laughs> yeah. 
So what, what role do you think perception plays in achieving an adventure then? Uh, probably in one sense, everything. And, uh, and then a sliding uh, scale of everything. So perception initially, it's, it's always just amazing to me how, you know, we as humans and me as myself can look at the picture of a mountain, like Mount Alberta, the first picture, you know, that I would look at it was from the 1970s uh, uh, Rocky Mountain South Guidebook, or maybe it was the North Guidebook. But it's a little tiny picture, like an inch and a half by an inch or something like that. And I can see Mount Alberta and I can perceive myself into this mountain and see myself going up this one and a half centimeter high mountain that is, you know, I don't know what the math is, but that mountain is, you know, there's 5,000 feet of climbing to be got up that mountain or 3,000 feet of climbing. So the scale is just, is wild. (laughs) And to be able to, to, to have that perception and then make it a dream and an ambition and something that you want to do uh, is, is amazing to me. And uh, I think uh, with perception also, um, you know, after those 700 days and then a thousand days and X number of days off climbing, you get a, a shift in your perception in that you start to normalize things that uh, the vast majority of people would never normalize. So, you know, the risks that you are uh, undertaking on a mountain like Nanga Parbat, you start to normalize that and perceive it as proper or acceptable. And that uh, uh, that's an amazing kind of... Uh, adjustment to me. And uh, I don't have that perception anymore, that perception. I'm on the downside of things now. So, you know, even mountains that I have soloed uh, in this area that I can see or climb by myself on Yamneska are so far beyond me now that I don't have that uh, perception anymore. So I don't have that uh, dream and that desire to go up there anymore. But at one point I did. And I did. (laughs) So there you go. (laughs) One of the areas that I find people have a hard time perceiving is, is risk. I think uh, human beings have a really hard time, you know, judging, judging and assessing risk accurately. Can you think of a time when you looked back and felt that you had taken on too much risk when you look back after the fact? Yeah. Yeah. There's been, uh, you know, several times, uh, in my climbing where there's been accidents that, uh, you know, probably bit off, uh, too much. And, and, uh, yeah, uh, didn't perceive or calculate the risk for what it was. And, uh, some of those times, you know, uh, made mistakes. Um, but, uh, yeah, what one time that co- comes to mind as far as uh, biting off more than we should have was uh, uh, my uh, dear friend Troy Kerwin and myself guiding. And uh, at the time, I think I was an alpine guide. I hadn't uh, uh, passed my uh, 
mountain guide certification yet, but I was an alpine guide and my buddy Troy was an apprentice guide and we were in on in the Mount Logan area and Mount Logan is the highest peak in Canada and the second highest peak in North America actually and the other part of Logan that's really cool is it's the largest massif in the world. It's the most voluminous independent mountain on earth. So we're across from that and but we can see it right there is this bulk of mountain and you can't go anywhere and find more bulk of mountain than Logan. It's over a hundred or a hundred kilometers around its base. So it's one big chunk of rock and ice and snow and all that kind of stuff. So Logan is our back street and we've flown in and we uh, have the objective with uh, three of our clients to get up uh, and do uh, a peak that already has a name. It was named Mount Upton after a famous pilot up there, Phil Upton, but it had never been climbed before. It's an 11,300 foot high mountain right across from Logan. And uh, yeah, yeah, I think uh, very soon in our trip, like two or three days in, we took our three guests to the top of Mount Upton. And it was, wow, you know, no other human has ever stood on this point on the planet. We're the very first. And that is an adventure in itself. To, to be the first human to touch some of this stuff, whether that's a rock face, like in my own history, North Twin, like, no one had ever touched that rock before. Some other folks have touched it now, but at that point, no one had ever touched it. So it's a discovery. There's adventure and discovery, right? But uh, we get to the top, and the top part of the mountain was quite a hard ice slope. It wasn't uh, super steep. Uh, let's call it uh, 25 or 30 degrees. But for ice, that is steep enough to, if you fall on it, as uh, one of my friends, Larry Stanier, said about ice climbing, you know, grade one is the easiest ice climb you can get. And it's kind of like going up a frozen creek. But uh, as Larry said, even grade one ice is going to seem really steep if you fall on it because you're gone much like that. You accelerate because ice is super slippery. So I'm in the lead. I've got two of the guests following me or I'm, I'm short roping them down. And uh, Troy is following me. He's trying to learn this art of mountain guiding. And I've got my two clients. I encourage them to cramp on down this ice slope. And I cramp on after them. And halfway down this ice slope, and it wasn't huge. It's like 30 feet or something. I'm like, oh, God. You know, I'm not going to be able to hold these guys if they slip here. Like, this is too much. And I, no one slipped. Great. But... Yeah, it uh, it was too much. We we should have stopped and put it in ice cream later, made some kind of adjustment that was safer. And uh, how did I deal with that? Um, you know, we came down and uh, um, I think we put the, the clients were out front a little bit. And I said to Troy, you know, I just confessed that was too pushy, man. I we should have I should have slowed that down and uh had more protection or more safety and uh yeah didn't go south but uh might have gone south so my bad yeah how how did uh how did your guests handle that when you admitted your mistake i only admitted it to troy <laughs> I don't think I, I, if I have admitted it to those guys, it was uh, after the fact. 
But uh, Troy uh, was quite good about it. He said, yeah, I knew that. <laughs> so Troy was being a better guy than me at that point. So should have had him out front. Um, but uh, one of the gentlemen uh, on that trip, Troy and I had in Pakistan, close to Rakaposhi, a couple years later. And uh, we had a very stressful descent in a storm. One of the most stressful guiding situations I think I've ever been in. And it was because uh, two of my clients slipped in this uh, slidable snow twice and I fully caught them on a, on a, a short roping technique, um, you know, which means that if I don't come up with success, all three of us are going to start accelerating and sliding down this mountain. So that got really stressful. And uh, at one point I just snapped. You know, one of the few times in my guiding that I just snapped and I shared my frustration and anger and rage with my clients. And there was a lot of swearing and profane words. And I can really link them together when I really want to. Bellowing out of my mouth at the end of which, you guys kick your crap on and get hard, right? Fucking now. After my third catch, right? So... Troy is having the same situation the day before in this storm going down. And uh, one of the gentlemen on his rope just hits the snow and starts, you know, blathering around and he's losing his stuff. Like he's totally losing his marbles, like just going. He's totally unregulated is what the psychologists would say. He's in flight mode. And he can't flight far enough. He wants to run away as fast as possible. But the one guy we had on Robson, Dale, he's, uh, he's worked with uh, animals his whole career. That's all he did. He was, uh, you know, he worked with horses and cattle and stuff his whole life. He was a stockman. He <laughs> grabbed this guy by the lapels and said, for God's sakes, man, pull yourself together and shook him. And, that kind of worked. <laughs> so, yeah, Dale, how would he, you know, uh, he react? He, uh, you know, if I did tell him about that story, he would be just, well, I'm glad, you know, you, you thought we wouldn't trip. <laughs> and we didn't trip, you know. <laughs> so, there you go. <laughs> I didn't get picked up by the lapels. <laughs> As a guide and a, and a professional adventurer, uh, you probably had to make a lot of big decisions, and some of those decisions have been tough. Uh, tell us about uh, a time you had to make a difficult decision. Um, yeah, some of the... Uh, they're, they're not actually difficult decisions, but they're stressful decisions. And uh, they're often around guiding at altitude. And, uh, you know, part of guiding at altitude is trying to keep people gastrointestinally healthy and then keep them from getting uh, mountain sickness. So um, both, you know, especially the mountain sickness can be a deadly uh, disease or maladaption that people get. So... Stressful times are, you know, um, 
making a judgment about these people that they're getting in trouble and they have to go down. Dissent is usually uh, the cure. And uh, then the, the stressful part of the situation often is how do we get them down? Um, you know, sometimes there's been times when that was like in Peru, putting someone, several different people on burrows and having them carried by an animal down until they can get to a lower elevation. Um, one time on Mount McKinley, when I was guiding and uh, there was a, uh, some young guys who uh, got in trouble close to us at the, the high camp. And to uh, this one guy, he was going to die from uh, some form of edema. I don't know if it was pulmonary or cerebral. But the solution was for me to run down from 17,000 feet through the night um, down to the uh, uh, medical tent at 14,000 feet and get uh, Rob Roach and Peter Hackett. Peter Hackett was one of the best, he still is one of the best physicians in the world with regards to altitude sickness. And getting Rob and Peter to pack up, the three of us to climb back up to 17,000 feet, get this guy. And, uh, and then I lowered the three of them, you know, 300 feet at a time down the, uh, do the math, Barry, 4,000 feet to the camp. And what's amazing, this guy who was comatose and had two liters of saline put into him to get his, uh, his blood back to more viscous form. And he had amphetamines, not amphetamines, dexamethasone. I don't know what else Peter put into him, but it got the guy staggering. And that got me to lower the three of them. We got down to the base, the, the camp at the thing. And this young guy said, oh, I'm going to go make myself soup. And he walked around. And that's the, the recovery from, from the loss of altitude. Just, just remarkable. So, yeah, those things are, are pretty stressful. Uh, yes and no, they're stressful. They're decisions you have to make. And then you got to do something about it. And it's the doing something about it that's often the most stressful part. How do you get these people down? Yeah. Who in your uh, time mountaineering has helped you become better at delivering adventure uh, to yourself and others? And what advice did they give you? Um, I think uh, some of the great advice that I got was that first season in Chamonix, which was 1980. Kevin and I had, uh, you know, uh, quit our jobs in Calgary and by train, planes and automobiles made it over to Chamonix and were committed to climbing in the Alps till our money ran out, camping illegally on the side of, uh, in front of the cemetery, actually, close to the cemetery in Chamonix. I think the French left us alone because they're kind of suspicious that way. And uh, yeah, you, you get... Uh, uh, into the largely British climbing culture, but also some of the French climbing culture and a greater European climbing culture, but specifically the Brits. And the Brits were the ones we were camping with, hanging out with, climbing with a lot of the time, going to the Bar Nash, the Bar National, um, when it was raining and it rains a lot in Chamonix. And, 
you know, nursing a beer for a you know, while and just talking with these guys. And some of the older Brits who had been at the game in a while, for a while, you know, they would give us this advice. And it was, tread lightly, lads, tread lightly. These are dangerous mountains. It's really easy to get seriously hurt or killed the very first day. So another way to say it, which I have said here, is baby steps. You know, it's got to be incremental. You know, tread lightly, lads. Take your time. Get your toolkit together. Learn stuff. Get your skills together. And eventually, you know, see where that can take you in this game. But uh, it is a game. And you're playing chess largely. Um, you could say you're playing chess with death. If you make a serious enough chess move that's wrong, you can get killed doing it. So you've got to be quite uh, calculated and uh, appropriate. <laughs> easy to say, not always easy to do. You bite off too much. <laughs> uh, let's switch gears a little bit here and talk about uh, the environment that we're out in, uh, in the mountains. Uh, we often have encounters with wildlife and, so, and quite often we don't even know they're there and they know we're there uh, and we are in, in their home and, and their environment. Have you ever had an interesting encounter with a bear on one of your trips? Uh, yeah, I've had, uh, probably four relatively close encounters with grizzlies and a couple of those encounters, the grizzly was definitely going to make contact with us. It was coming towards us and it wanted to make contact. And at that point, you know, the biologists and people who study bears will probably tell you that the bear has made a decision. And uh, it may not be a great decision for the human being, but it's the bear's decision. And in both those events, I was able to get away from the bear once in 1991 at the Columbia Ice Fields by hitting my butt and putting my ice axe over my head and sliding over the cornice that we use to teach crevasse rescue at up in Parker's Ridge and going off this cornice and going for 15, 20 feet of air and hammering down into the snow and then getting up and sliding down the snow and sprinting up the other side. And thankfully the grizzly, you know, it was Butch Cassie and the Sundance Kid for one, you know, without the grizzly at that point, between two meters and a meter away from us, if I had a hit my clothing and said, slide, you know, without the bear there, my 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 two guests would have gone, what are you, crazy? You'll break your leg. We're not doing that. Like Butch Casty, we'll jump. We can't jump. Why? I can't swim. <laughs> Heck, the fall's probably going to kill you. <laughs> Anyways, you know, without the grizzly there, they would have never slid. With the grizzly there, instantaneous. Didn't even hesitate. <laughs> right over the cliff with me. And uh, we got to run away from that bear and watch that bear rip our packs apart which was kind of funny in itself, but just to watch this animal basically play with our packs at one point, bouncing a, a Ziploc bag full of food on his head as he's lying on his back, paws in the air, and uh, we eventually got away. 
Another grizzly encounter was uh, 2011, I think, up in the um, Lake Louise group where a grizzly, my uh, clients and I were coming up to go to uh, uh, Mount Aberdeen. So hike up through um, towards Saddle Pass up the side of Mount Fairview. And, uh, you know, I'm yodeling every 50 meters as I do to warn the bear that we're coming. So it's like, wow, that set the, the sound thing off on the recorder. You guys' ears okay? <laughs> Got the meter Hopefully going the there. bear hears that too. And I know this bear heard us. We come up on this trail and this bear steps right onto the trail and looks at us and he's about oh man 20 meters away 30 meters away something like that and i do what i usually do with other bears that i've been that close to it's like okay mr bear it's okay it's cool you know avoid eye contact start talking to him in a calm voice get my client don't run don't scream slowly turn around and start walking away and the other two bears that i've talked to like that have let me walk away and that's pretty cool. This bear, I thought, okay, he's going to let us walk away. He got up and started walking after us. And he walked with us for, I don't know, three, four, five hundred meters, 15 minutes down the, the trail. And then towards the end, he had made a decision and he was getting closer to us. And it was obvious he was going to make contact with us. And uh, I knew that because the last time I looked over my shoulder, he went up off the ground and slammed both paws on the ground, which is a very firm form of communication that it's not going to end well for you guys. And it's like, I'm, I'm in charge here and I'm not happy. So I loosened off our packs and I said to my client, jump your pack. And I was hoping that bear would go after the packs and buy us some time. And there was one tree that I had spotted, the first Engelman spruce that I saw because we we're going through an avalanche path and all the trees are five feet high. And there's that one tree, I gotta get up this tree. And me and my client go to this tree and climb up this tree, initially 30 feet. And we're up there for uh, probably three hours getting hypothermic, seeing a helicopter fly by with the rescue guys in it that I know I can almost see their faces, but I can't communicate with them because my radio and my uh, telephone are in the pack <laughs> and the bears ripping up the pack. And then every so often coming towards the tree, which is all very scary. And then the bear came into the tree and it went from scary to absolute terror. And we started sprinting up the tree, went as high as the tree as we could go and the bear kept coming up the tree. We went, uh, Troy and I went back with a tape measure and measured it. We went 56 feet up a 65 foot high Engelman spruce. And the branches were, there was leader had broken off. So one branch was the size of my bicep, the other the size of my forearm. And I'm surfing these to keep the wind from breaking these trees. And the bear is coming up the tree. And the bear came 33 feet up the tree before he decided to go down. And uh, initially, my response was to scream for help in a voice that I didn't even recognize coming out of my own body. It was like my 
12-year-old when she would fall on her bike or my 10-year-old when she'd fall on her bike and maybe scrape her knee and start wailing. It was that kind of little girl, high octave voice, screaming, just abjectly screaming for help. And then I changed it to a very deep baritone voice and I started swearing at the bear and looking into his eyes and for whatever reason the bear decided to go down. And uh, yeah, that's the other time I got away from a grizzly <laughs> by going up a tree. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I, I uh, was actually pretty, pretty close to that incident. Um, I, I was working as a wildlife human conflict specialist for Parks Canada that summer in Lake Louise, but I just happened to be on a day off when you were having that uh, adventure, mm, shall we call it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was, it was great to hear that uh, things had worked out okay for you there. Yeah. Yeah, quite a terrifying situation. Yeah, it worked out great for us. And it was amazing to see uh, our friend Alex come up with his shotgun. And that just made me feel so good. And by then the bear had left, actually. The bear was out of the area. Uh, the bear has left the building. You can all go home. The bear, Elvis has left the building. But uh, unfortunately, uh, that bear uh, had had a number of encounters that were getting closer and closer with humans. So uh, the next day, he was uh, kind of, you know, trapped and euthanized soon after down by the highway track. So yeah, it's not a happy story. It's, uh, yeah, it didn't work out for there. Yeah, we, we'd worked on that bear for, uh, for quite a while. Um, and at, at a certain point, yeah, yeah. unfortunately it becomes yeah. untenable for the, uh, for the safety of, of everybody, uh, in the area. You know, Barry, my grandmother gave me two pieces of advice. She said, <laughs> stay away from the bears and don't fall down the mountain. Those are the two things. Those are the two things that she gave me. You know, what do you say to someone who can't understand why people want to climb mountains or or push themselves oh, to the edge? Um, yeah, if uh, you know, I am going to have a conversation with people. You know, that's another judgment that you're gonna gonna make, and uh, most people who are making that comment don't really want to have a conversation. They, their mind's made up, you know, and most people will say you're crazy. Right. Uh, and I like Warren Harding's response to that was that, you know, they'd ask him, why do you climb? And he said, he'd say, I'm climb I climb because I'm mad, but it's a fine kind of madness. <laughs> so there's more there. And, there is uh, a conversation to be had about, you know, the reasons that we go climbing. And uh, um, uh, Alex Lowe used to say when people would, would say to him, oh, you have a death wish. And Alex did end up dying climbing. But his response would be, no, I don't have a death wish. I have a life wish. I want to, to live. And for me, you know, for whatever reason, part of my definition of life is climbing mountains. And uh, my buddy Jack Tackle once asked me about uh, 15 years ago, maybe 20, said, as Jack would say, so when was it that you 
figure it out. You were put on this earth to climb. <laughs> and, you know, like the big wave guys say, climbing chooses you. And it's not for everybody, nor is everything else for everybody. But if everybody didn't explore some of this stuff and uh, test themselves and try to come to terms with mountains and a lot of other human pursuits, we wouldn't be the species that we are. And we wouldn't have had whatever <laughs> success we've had, if we can call it success. I like the term that uh, an entomologist said on the radio one day when I was listening, and they're talking about humanity and what humanity is, is has uh, done. And the, the entomologist said, well, you know, if ants were given the same kind of uh, influence or uh, prevalence over the earth uh, that humans have, the earth would last about 15 minutes. <laughs> so, I don't know, maybe there is some hope for us. <laughs> Barry, I just want to circle back to something that you talked about earlier. We've been talking about the importance of adventure, pushing our limits, exposing ourselves to adversity, and the danger that comes from that, not just with climbing, but with all outdoor sports. You mentioned that the first mountain guides in Canada, who were the Swiss guides, had no fatalities while they were guiding. While I would say that the safety record for guided trips is still very good, considering the vast numbers of people going out into the outdoors, in general, there's been a push when it comes to outdoor sports towards the more extreme. When I started to teach skiing, getting five feet of air was a big deal. Two years ago, I was working on a program where teenagers were doing 20-foot drops without batting an eyelash. To build on this, I had an interesting conversation with a colleague of mine last summer. The previous winter, he had a paragliding accident that led to some very serious injuries. Apparently, he was trying to do a roll in midair when he ran out of space. The end result was that he sailed straight into the ground at 60 kilometers an hour. He just missed landing on a large rock in the process. When I spoke to him about it, he was very keen to get back out and to try that maneuver again. He went on to tell me that he loved the adrenaline rush that he got when he really pushed his limits. When I asked him if that adrenaline rush was worth 40 years of his life, he gave me a puzzled look. I pointed out to him that he had just almost been killed and now he wanted to go out and do the same thing again. What concerned me was that he hadn't really come to grips with what had happened and what he could do to reduce the chance of it happening again. Listening to him, he was painting a picture of someone who was going to keep pushing his limits until his luck finally ran out. Barry, it's fair to say that you've done a lot of extreme climbing in your life. What is your advice to people who want to get out there and do higher risk activities? Yeah, I think it's a... Uh... <clears throat> Same advice that the uh, British climbers gave me, tread lightly, lads. And, uh, you know, you need to have uh, a number of uh, things come together. 
for you to uh, get to wherever you're going to get to, 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 to get to the point where you're the most capable. And some of the, you know, my, my buddy, Bill Belcourt uh, calls it, uh, I think three or four lines that need to intersect. One of which is your, your physical ability. So your, your athletic, physical strength, endurance, and a lot of that's going to peak in your 30s, maybe to 35, um, your experience, and you need a lot of miles to gain experience. You need to see a lot of different things. So your physical ability, your experience, the mountain has to come together, and then your intellectual ability to, to deal needs to come together. And, you know, these lines come in and intersect um, a couple times in a lifetime for a certain amount of time, and then they start to drop off and separate. So there will be a time, but you don't want to, to try to force those lines together. They've got to come over time. And it's really cool when you do get it all together to be, you know, the best you're going to be and to be able to, to, to realize that and to see where you can get at that. And interestingly, one of the best times those lines came together for me were on Nanga Parbat and we didn't make the top. One of the most valuable ascents of my life. And we were relatively close to the top, but we never made the top. We, you know, had a long ways to go still to get to the top. And, uh, those lines came together. The mountain line didn't come together. But uh, what I learned from that and took away from that is some of the richest experiences in the mountains for me. So specific to um, your buddy who wants to get back at the parapenting, um, you know, after an injury or a pretty significant setback or if you want to call it failure, and those are such bad terms like success, failure. Here's the two goalposts. There's where they exist. And really all of human existence happens pretty much between success and what we call failure. We're mostly in between those goalposts. And that's where we grow and live and learn and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, after a, a serious accident or... Uh, you know, a slap down, gauge your perception. Have you normalized something too much? Are you accepting too much of a situation that you don't have to accept? And, you know, soldiers have to make those decisions too. Um, policemen have to make those decisions. I'm sure firefighters have to make those decisions. Like we alter our perception to make things that perhaps we shouldn't declare normal, normal. So think about that. Where am I on that scale? And is it appropriate for me to accept this right now? Is it appropriate for me to accept this anytime? That's a fair question. And a lot of people will pose that question and turn away from alpinism and, and walk away from it. Yeah, yeah, or whatever risk sport you're doing.
So Barry, you shared a ton of great wisdom and insights with us today. Going forward, what do you want your legacy to be? Yeah, this is like uh, something we haven't talked about, but uh, will be like a 180 degree shift. And I want my legacy to be having been a good father. That, you know, of all these accomplishments you, we've been talking about, and this is something that people say, but comes from my heart. The most important thing that I do on this earth is raise my daughters. Full stop, period. Nothing else is anywhere near as important as that. All the climbing, all whatever, the writing, working on movies, all of that doesn't. That's that's my most important thing, and that's what I would love to be uh, remembered for. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep. Barry, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we really, uh, really appreciate it. That was, uh, that was amazing. Cool. Well, thank you gentlemen and good luck with listening to all this and trying to figure out how to chip it together. <laughs> Lots of great material there, Barry. Uh, when we were on our first aid research, wilderness first aid research a, a few weeks ago, uh, yeah, we had a, a good conversation there about this podcast and it's great to have you on it. Well, thanks for coming on today, Barry. This has been really amazing. If you're looking to learn more about Barry, you can check out his book, The Calling, A Life Rocked by Mountains. If you would like to go climbing with Barry, you can find him guiding and instructing at Yamnuska Mountain Adventures. Well, Jordy, what were your takeaways from part two? What else does it take to achieve adventure? Well, Chris, a standout uh, story that uh, came from Barry was the bear incident there. Uh, just absolutely terrifying to have a large male grizzly bear angry with you and uh, and coming up the tree at you uh, to you and your client, you know. And and you do hear from people that will say, even experts say, "Oh, grizzly bears don't climb trees or don't climb very well." And this is a pretty classic example where that one climbed quite a ways. And uh, Barry and his client did a great job of surviving that incident. Uh, and, uh, so yeah, really kudos to them for that. Uh, yeah. And, and being able to tell the, live to tell the story there, cause it was uh, definitely on the edge of uh, feeling like they might not survive. And, uh, you know, just a couple things, uh, you know, there, there are probably some tools that Barry wished he had with him there, including communications, uh, bear spray, that sort of stuff. And, uh, so consider, you know, if you're out biking or climbing, you got a pack, you got a bike, don't have that stuff, uh, attached to your, uh, accessories or carrying, carrying, uh, devices and actually have it on your person. And then if you have to ditch and run, or you have to get away from your bicycle, it's not attached to your bicycle. There was the discussion about his client that was kind of losing it there. And, uh, and having to, having to bring him back into, uh, some semblance of reality in order to, uh, to carry on with, uh, with the adventure and have the adventure go well. And so I, I think we should all, uh, really work to have some pretty good tools in our toolbox. Cause one thing that works with one client, uh, might, might work with them and, and, but, uh, there, sometimes it might not work with them. So I'd really encourage you to, uh, kind of create a number of strategies to, to deal with uh, people that are 
starting to freak out, freezing up, uh, wanting to run away, all, uh, you know, just not thinking clearly and how, how you can deal with that. And basically every situation is a custom situation there, uh, depending on circumstances and the, the uh, personality and experience of your client. So Chris, uh, what did you uh, want to talk about with this episode? Any, uh, anything that really hit home for you? Well, Chris, uh, that was just great conversation with Barry. Always a pleasure. And let's start with the bear incident. So just to set the, the stage for that, I was, I was working as a human, or sorry, as a human wildlife conflict specialist uh, in Lake Louise for Parks Canada um, at the time that that bear incident occurred. And I just, I happened to be not, uh, not working that day, but that was one of the bears that myself and my team were, uh, were working on there. Um, to try and uh, and basically keep it safe. We worked on that bear for a number of years. Uh, so it was an unfortunate incident um, and basically resulted in the bear uh, having to be destroyed, uh, which is uh, never never a task that's taken lightly um, by, by the wildlife management team. Uh, that bear um, had a, had quite a long history of, uh, of being too comfortable with people and and pushing things uh, too much is just really unfortunate that it happened and so just for for folks to know um, in our audience here uh, Barry did a lot of stuff right there and uh, and survived because of that and uh, you got to be yeah basically at that point you're you're uh, looking out for your own survival and uh, and it, it did work out um, in this case for for Barry and his client uh, so having preparedness, um, you know, be travel with other people, um, the larger the group, the better really in bear country, um, statistics have shown and, uh, having the tools available to you. So that includes bear spray, knowing how to use it. Uh, you know, if, you know, I'm not going to criticize Barry for leaving his pack cause it seemed like the right thing to do. Uh, but on the other hand, then you don't have, uh, some of your tools with you, including, uh, you know, he was, he was within cell coverage there. So it would have been nice to call out for help at that point. Um, not that anyone's going to be there right away, but, uh, good to get the cavalry coming towards you. And so, uh, just a few things like that, you know, critical things, uh, whether you're biking, skiing, climbing, uh, it might be better to have that right on your person as opposed to in your pack, um, you know, every situation is different, so we don't want to second guess too much. Uh, another point uh, that Barry talked about was uh, when his client was kind of kind of losing it in an important um, moment, uh, you know, and grabbing them by the lapels as as a strategy. There, uh, really, you know, what us as guides and and educators, um, you know, you have to take every person uh, as as they come to you. And uh, you don't always know what's going to work, uh, but trying to use different tactics uh, when people are starting to freak out. And I'm sure, Chris, you've had that too, where people are not fully thinking straight and, uh, and it's you know a bit of a, a hazardous situation, maybe not a full emergency situation yet, um, but you don't want it to go that way. And it's just, it's good to have some, uh, various tools in your toolbox for, uh, for bringing people back to, uh, to where they need to be in terms of making good decisions and and looking out for themselves and look and working well with the team as a group, uh, so we won't get too into all the uh, the ways to do that. But there, um, yeah, have have a number of tools available to you 
strategies. So Chris, uh, what were some of your, uh, the things you took away from this podcast interview? Yeah, there were, there were a lot of great points there, Jordy. Um, one thing that stuck out to me is that idea of normalization and making sure that we don't fall into the trap of it. And Barry referenced the idea of, or the situation where if we spend a lot of time in a high risk environment, that level of risk can become normal and, and accepted and it shouldn't be. Uh, and that's something that we need to be um, cognizant of. And so, you know, driving is a really good example, actually, if, if, you know, if you're the type of person that always drives at, you know, 30 or 40 kilometers over the speed limit, you kind of get used to that and you think that that's normal, um, but it's not exactly safe. And so being aware of what's becoming normal when it shouldn't become normal is something that is really important. Another point that I thought he did a really good job of, of keying on was the idea of the packaging of the experience. And great adventures don't happen by accident. They take a lot to get them to come together. And the different components, you know, that he was referring to is, you know, your level of experience, physical ability, the conditions uh, that you're in, the environment, your mental ability to deal with the challenges you're going to face along the way. All of these forces have to come together and being able to achieve an adventure requires us to manage those and to react to all of them in a way that allows us uh, to succeed. And I know he didn't really like that, that word, that, that failure succeed, but, you know, success is being able to return uh, back to where you started in better shape than, than when you began. And that success is measured by how much better you were, whether it's, it's emotionally or mentally or, or physically, you know, better off. And so this whole podcast is about what it takes to be able to deliver those adventures so that we uh, can experience uh, more adventure for ourselves and for uh, the people that we are spending the most time with. Jordy, did you have any other thoughts on that? Yeah, the, the focus of this uh, particular episode is uh, what it takes to achieve adventure. And uh, I think really through talking with Barry here, uh, he is his penultimate adventurer. Uh, he has gone many places where no one has gone before in terms of first ascents, uh, sleeping in very uncomfortable vertical environment positions on the rope and tucked into a snow cave kind of thing. And uh, so he's got that side of things. And then also he's taken people out just to the crag and taught them how to climb for years. Uh, he's done that kind of uh, instructional work too. And, uh, and really for him to be able to flip back and forth between those, um, you know, personal adventures, uh, big days guiding, huge days guiding uh, clients um, to bring them to their, the peak of their adventure. And then uh, also just, you know, working with people that haven't done very much of this stuff and, and uh, having that realization that they're um, first timers. Now, let's turn it over to you, the listener. What were your takeaways? You can share your thoughts, stories, or insights with us via our social media feeds or by emailing us. You can find our contact information at deliveringadventure.com. We've 
also posted our contact information in the show notes, as well as links to how you can find Barry. Well, that's it for this episode. Before you go, though, please don't forget to follow or subscribe to this podcast through your favorite streaming service. This is how you can help to keep this podcast going so that Jordy and I can keep bringing you more content. Thanks for listening.